Well, hey, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I'm just so looking forward to the show tonight because, man, this is just one of those good news shows. We had one sensational weekend with the All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game, and we had some great developments for housing in the city, which is one of our big issues and really needs help, and the Habitat for Humanities people are, are going to talk to us about that a little later on in the show. But we're going to start off with Christian Sonier, who comes to us from the Convention and Visitors Bureau, and in the studio also is Grayson Kramer, who is nothing but a sports fan. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. He's a lot more than that, but he's a big-time NBA sports fan. And, you know, sports is not my normal subject whatsoever. They once put me on a show with Oliver in the morning after some big old Saints game, and it was like <laughs> dead air from my end. I'm just, I'm just not my thing. But basketball, I love. And I don't know whether that's because, I don't know, we had basketball teams in the Bronx where I was raised. But it's a beautiful game. I, lo- I just love watching it because it's so – it's almost like choreography or dance. That's my take on it. I know that's a different take from your take. But, um, Christian, let's start with you for a second because, um, you know, I was saying you, could, you, could, you, could, you knew something was going on in town because that, that traffic had just picked up. Yeah. And you knew it wasn't just Mardi Gras traffic. And you kind of were saying, what's going on? And then, oh, right, the NBA game. Yeah. It started to happen on Thursday, and it kind of it spiked on Friday, and then from Saturday on, it, you could tell that something big was in town. And it was different from most NBA All-Star games because we, we, we heard, you know, we got the game so late in the game that we didn't have them, we didn't have the NBA blocks of rooms concentrated in one, in one area of the city. We really had to spread those people out. So they were, they touched more than 20 hotels around the downtown and central business district area, and we were sold out. Which is a good thing. It's a I great – I mean, spread the business around. What's wrong with that? Yep. Hotels yeah. were at 99% occupancy, and that's fantastic. That's something, yeah. Yeah. Really. So, so give me just a little bit of a feeling of, okay, when, when – I really want to know about that moment when their previous location cratered mm. for political reasons. Mm-hmm. Who said – whoa, let's go for it, pick up the phone, called, and made this happen, because that was phenomenal. Whoever did that? Uh, I, th- I heard the commissioner talk about this. I was not privy to those early calls, but it was a, a call to the governor and a call to the mayor. I think the ma- mayor's call came first, and then – What do you mean a call to them? From the NBA. So it, so this really emanated from the NBA? We didn't go say, hey – they came. They knew that we would be open to this, and they knew that we had the capabilities of hosting this sort of I'm thing. Doing it fast, such a too. last at, at the last minute. We'd hosted two already, so we were kind of on a short list, even if that was just a mental list. So yeah, the commissioner reached out to us and said, "Can you do it?" And the mayor said, "Yes, we're going to make it happen." And so did the governor. And and then there were a lot of other people that got involved, like the convention center and SMG and the Smoothie King Center, Mercedes-Benz Superdome. All those people had to move things around to make room for this major event. So how did that work? Give me some nuts and bolts description of that process because it's fascinating. I mean, to me, in a way, that's as interesting as what happened after they got here in the game. But it's how you put those pieces all together. It, it took a lot of 
cooperation among hotel general managers because these dates were already guaranteed to other conventions that were in town right we had right. we had conventions that were that were here first so we had to honor our commitments to them and maybe kind of move around their room blocks and move around their event space a little bit keep them happy keep the nba happy and it was a lot of cooperation and negotiation between restaurant owners, hotel general managers, convention center space. Because you actually had to undo and redo. At the same time. Wow. That's really it I didn't even chess. think about that. <laughs> so so with so how did you keep the convention people happy? Because I would think that they were um, like they were being imposed on, basically. Well, at the end of the day everyone it's business. Everyone is their business is being positively impacted. It's it's inconvenient and uncomfortable to have to go back to people that you've already guaranteed things to and say, well, the thing we talked about, we've got to adjust it. But it behooved everyone involved to do that because they were going to – they stood to posit- positively impact their business. This is a big deal. This is a – I heard the mayor say a $500 million shot in the arm over this weekend. Wow. Most cities would kill for that. And and, and then you got to think. And most of, cities would work on it for a decade to get it. <laughs> right. Right. It takes a, sometimes it takes a long time to put something like this together. Right. Right. And then it's come, it, it came, it preceded what will be a, basically an $840 million shot in the arm, which is this weekend, which is also sold out. That's how much we get from Mardi Gras? Mm-hmm. $840 <clears throat> million. Now, that number includes the whole two weeks leading up to Mardi Gras. It's sure, not just this sure. weekend. But, yeah, when you start thinking – when you start talking in the terms of hundreds of millions weekend after weekend, you're – that's rare air. There are a lot of cities that would kill for that. And and, and we just – I mean, we are sort of, as they say, a well-oiled machine. I mean, we, we just – we've got these big events down. What What is it that we do – that's different if it is different from other cities and the way we handle these big events. You know, I'd love to see how other cities do this, but I can tell you about how our city does it, and I'm proud of it and its leadership. And I, I got to tip my hat to to, um, to Mayor Landry. For the past two weeks, he called meetings on the ninth floor of City Hall with everyone involved in doing this sort of thing, and basically has everyone report out on their readiness. So this table includes everyone from NOPD to sanitation, and he he challenges them. He asks tough mm-hmm. questions and makes sure that everyone has measured the lowest hanging branch on the parade route to be sure that the yeah. tallest float's going to get under it, even mm-hmm. if it rains and the branch is heavier. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of planning involved, and that's just one example. You, when you start thinking about homeland security and protecting from terrorist threats to gun violence in the French Quarter. I was just going to say, and, and then uh, uh, just it only takes this one little shooting, you know, on the parade route, which is so disappointing for years. That just didn't happen here. I know. And, of course, I'm one of those people who thinks that guns is a, is a big part of the problem. <laughs> well, if anyone's considering that and you're out there listening, I would caution you because I could not believe the level of um, camera surveillance that the city has going on for for the NBA All-Star Weekend game, and it's going to continue. It's part of the whole plan to improve safety, but they're watching. And so so are you saying that we actually increased the number of, of cameras out mm-hmm. around the city? In the French Quarter. And that's and permanent now. It's permanent, and it's going mm-hmm. to gradually increase. Mm-hmm. I, I heard a weird thing, and I, I assume that this didn't really happen, but there was some discussion that you were going to have 
I don't know, ammunition sniffing dogs in the French Quarter. That didn't happen, right? I heard that talk too. No, I don't. I, I don't think that that's was that part was of an the urban rumor. Master plan. But there are there are a lot more cameras. There are a lot more eyes out there and in a good way. It's not a creepy in, thing. In, uh, undercover guys mm-hmm. out there too, right? And women, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so. That's really interesting to hear about those confabs on the ninth floor. So it's it's interesting to know that the mayor is that hands-on and really um, was keeping everybody accountable. It's accountability. Sometimes it really counts Yeah. in, he, in a situation like this. He's got the city ready. Excellent. So here we are. The event starts. So give me a little bit of a sense of it, and, and maybe this is where you want to come in. And, and I mean, w- Grayson, who is a business student at Tulane, um, somehow or another finagled, and by the way, I didn't hear anything about this until afterwards. I just want you to know. <laughs> somehow he finagles a ticket into the big show, right? I have to thank my friend Mike for that one. hope he's listening. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I managed to get a ticket for uh, for both nights, actually, um, Saturday night and Sunday night, the game, and uh, all the, the fun stuff before that. Um, it was pretty amazing to watch. They're, they're pretty amazing athletes, and they have a pretty amazing group of people around them, both celebrities and their fans. It was it was really amazing to see them all in, in the city at one time. What did it feel like? It was just a sense of of happiness. I don't even I don't even know how to describe it. Um, it's like when you see a celebrity and you really want to go up to them and say hi, but you like you kind of like shy away. But it was that feeling because they were all over the place. Like Jay-Z and Beyonce were here, NBA stars all over the place. Like you said, 100 NBA legends were in the city doing volunteer work. Like yeah. that's, that's amazing for the NBA, and that's amazing for this city. So you could really you could feel it downtown. And you went to the Champion, Champion Square? Yeah, Champion Square hosted a, a couple concerts. They had a, a Pitbull concert. There were a ton of people there for. A um, what? Pitbull. Uh, okay, this Mr. is really Mr. Mr. Worldwide. Oh, very famous. He played Jazz Fest. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. And, um, I hate not knowing about the latest thing. And they had, they had full-size basketball courts in Champion Square, like a DJ at all times, uh, live music. It was it was it was a happening scene. And under and on top of it is the Benson Tower with that huge picture of Anthony Davis with Oh my god, the graphics around town that was just spectacular. But I was really sort of played for the fool a little bit with it. I look out the window of a meeting I was in on Forger Street and I say the huge equality sign, right? And I say Wow, some kids got up there and hung that sign, <laughs> like the sign that was hanging Nike. from the crane at the White House. <laughs> and then, um, who was it, Delphio Barcelos was in the meeting with me, and he said, oh, yeah, you see the little Nike <laughs> God, they got me. They did a great job. <laughs> the city yeah. looked terrific. It was beautiful. Um, all right, and so the games themselves? The games themselves were great. Um, the skills competition on Saturday night, the skills competition, the dunk contest, and the three-point contest are some of the NBA's fans' most favorite events. Why? Um, the, it's it's like those little competitions that like where you bet on one person and you really think they're going to win, especially the three-point contest. People love to talk about who's going to win versus who's going to win. You pick your guy on your team. Um, the dunk contest is a pure showing of athleticism and seeing it in person, seeing some guy jump over another guy on top of a guy's shoulder is amazing. Um, and, and seeing four guys do it in one night is, is something that I, I'll just never forget it. They're, they're so athletic. And like you said, they are like 
there is an aspect of, of dance to it because they really they dance around the court. Um, I use the example of, of Kyrie Irving who plays with LeBron James um, because the way that he moves, he's six foot two and he's not exactly a heavyweight, um, but he spins around and dances around these guys with, with ease and, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It really is. What about our new guy? Oh, DeMarcus, Boogie. Oh, Boogie, I hope you're listening, man. I couldn't be more excited for you to be here. Oh, my gosh. Um, you and Anthony Davis, everyone's saying it, the next coming of, of Tim Duncan and David Robinson. So if that turns out, New Orleans is going to be a championship city sooner than, uh, than everyone thinks. I heard him say that they're going to wreak havoc on the NBA. Those are his words. I love it. And the timing of that couldn't have been better. Well, the timing was utterly amazing. I actually saw that live for some freaky reason because I wasn't watching it. Maybe I, I can't. I couldn't have seen it live. I must have seen it in the news afterwards. But I did see it, and it was just oh wow, yeah. big moment, very big moment. You, you got to give you, you got to give it up to um, the management at the Pelicans for making all that happen. That did not happen by accident. Oh, that explain was, that to me. Well, I'm I'm sure that Mickey Loomis and others who plot out those types of trades were working on that far in advance of us hosting the All-Star Game and timed it to where it happened on the heels of the All-Star Game to kind of keep keep the momentum going. And, and I, I mean, you're a bigger NBA fan than I am, but it, we have gotten the attention of the country with this trade. And it's kind of breathed new life into the Pelicans franchise, which, which wasn't performing as well as any of us thought it should or could. But this is a game, truly a game changer. Well, not only did the Pelicans bring in this guy, but they brought in this guy who nobody thought they could get. Yeah. The, the Sacramento Kings management, their GM, um, said a couple weeks ago, we're not moving this guy. He's a franchise player, and he's, he's staying here. And clearly he went back on those words because the Pelicans managed to scoop him up for what people are calling the steal of the century because I, I love Buddy Heald. I, I really do. I was following him since Oklahoma, but he was the, the trademark piece of that of that trade along with two draft picks, and and they're they're out, and DeMarcus is in, and he is, he is big time. He's the best center in the NBA. That's what everyone says. You know what? What also sort of amazes me about this because new, there's sort of two. There's more than two sides, but there are there are two important sides to New Orleans. There's the layback, sort of what they some call the big easy. My husband happens to call it the little difficult because it's really not <laughs> as easy as people think. But um, there is a certain sort of easiness in the style that that we go about doing things in the city. And yet, at the same time, you're talking about very sharp-edged process yeah. that's involved in handling these big events that we do, whether it's the games or it's Mardi Gras. So, um, and the tourism industry, you weren't here, Christian, when I first came here in the early 70s. I don't think we were even born, right? I was born in 70. Okay, well, <laughs> so you were three years old when I came here. <laughs> and I went to interview people at the Tourism Commission and guess what? There were two people in the office. Wow. Ed McNeil and Beverly Gianna. Ed McNeil was Steve Perry's position, yeah. and Beverly was his assistant. She became the head of marketing for years and years and years. But, you know, there was a point in New Orleans when the city regarded tourism the way they still tend to regard the arts, which I'm fighting, you know, to get people to recognize it more as an important economic sector. But people didn't love tourism back then. Yeah. If you had a bus of offloading people on the street of the French Quarter, that was there'd be a federal case over that. People really did not appreciate, care for, support, no TLC for tourism. Yeah. And people like Warren Ruther and Melba Stieg and um, Merv Trail, those folks, 
they, um, and particularly Ed McNeil, they just completely changed the game. Mm -hmm. And now you're just, uh, what, not number one, number, number two, one. I mean, number a, one economic driver in the city? It Tell is. me a little bit about that. It employs 80,000 people. It's the, the number one economic driver in the city. And I think what's happened is people realize that tourism is big business. It's not some kind of boutique-y kind of little hobby business. Um, when you employ that number of people, it's for real, and it drives real tax dollars into the city. And it's what I call a real clean industry. It's not like there's a factory employing 80,000 people. Yeah. Those 80,000 people are working in jobs that we as New Orleanians enjoy. We go to restaurants. We go to attractions here in the city. And it's, 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 tourism is great for guests, and it's also great for the citizens of New Orleans. To what extent have we figured out how to – move people up the ladder in, in tourism? Because that's, that's something that you do still hear mm -hmm. complaints about, that we have too many people working in the service industry at minimum wage uh, or below yeah. uh, levels. So uh, how, how's that working out now? We hear that a lot. There, there's an arm of our organization at the CBB called New Orleans Will that's tackling those issues and trying to bridge the gap between our members who have jobs available and citizens of New Orleans who are seeking jobs. But you're right, they don't want low-wage jobs. They want uh, a job that leads to a career. So we're holding job fairs or career fairs in every city councilman's and woman's district. Oh, really? We are. Uh -huh. um, we just did one in the Lower Ninth Ward two weeks ago. And we'll continue to do that because we're getting dozens of our members coming out there and hundreds of, of citizens seeking jobs. And Again, I'm, I'm going to repeat this. These, the jobs the jobs that the tourism ministry allows you to have can lead to careers or they, they can be um, ways to supplement your income. There's low barrier jobs, server jobs, um, you know, the types of jobs that people say don't pay a living wage. And we would argue that they do pay a living wage. It's... There are, there are opportunities to grow from those jobs into higher-paying jobs. So there's no one is excluded. You don't have to have a college degree to get a job in the tourism industry. We take all comers, and then once you're in the tourism industry, it's up to you is, is as high as the ladder as you want to climb. Yeah, I know folks in the tourism. I, I, I mean, I, I see both sides of this story. I see a lot of people who are stuck in, in low-wage uh, low levels. But I, I do know people who are sort of upper-level management who came up from from all the way from the bottom. And I, mm -hmm. I've actually tracked them over the years when I knew them as a, as a host or a waiter in a restaurant. Next thing I know, I see that they're actually managing yeah. the restaurant. Or they might be an assistant manager of a hotel, et cetera. So, um, yeah, but I think that's something that obviously we need to really push, continue to push on and make sure that people really can walk up the ladder. Yeah. What's the next big event besides Mardi Gras? What's, what's next? next? I think the next big event would be you got your French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest and, and Bayou Country Superfest. That is a new Bayou one. Bayou Country Superfest. Okay. So that used to be held in Baton Rouge. And at Tiger Stadium, and then Tiger Stadium had to make renovations, and and we were afraid it was going to go away and go away to another state. Uh -huh. So much so like we again, did for the NBA, <laughs> yeah, we said here's an opportunity to make a good weekend a great weekend, mm -hmm. and it's going to be at the Superdome. SMG worked with the city and with us to make room for it, and it's um, it's going to be fantastic. It's Quint Davis produced event. It's, Is he doing it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. So that's the next really? new big event. You know, there's not. A, and what's there's the not date a, on that? Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I'd have okay, to do I'm a quick sorry. Google. I didn't mean to sorry. <laughs> do that too. Yeah. It's the same. Uh, let's see. Memorial Day weekend. I think it's or Labor Day weekend. I'll have to look it up. We'll we'll, uh, we'll check it out while okay. we're talking. But um, yeah, I, I, vaguely I heard a little bit about that. I didn't know much about it. it, it Bayou Country does that mean sort of more country oriented music? Is it that is. what it is basically? Yeah. It's, so we'll uh, have Willie Nelson and and some of the other big guys. I didn't see Willie in the lineup. Oh, they announced the lineup he's already. My favorite. Yeah, he's what great. What is the lineup? Oh, I'd have what to go back. And, the... I'd have to go back and look at that. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's out there. If you Google Bayou Country Superfest, you can find oh, well. it. And then after that, what um, comes Essence? Essence. Um, and then comes Hurricane Season. <laughs> hurricane Season. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what's happening in Hurricane Season? Do we really have a fall off in our tourism, or are people still coming even though it's people are still? You know, there's not really a down period. Sometimes summer is a little slow. August, September can be a little slow, but. You know as well as I do. There's a festival every weekend. There's 133 so semi festivals. Ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there's there's not a a, a big slack period. Um, hurricane season. We do have some meeting planners that are, you know, want to know what the plans are. What, again, I, I hand it to the city. We have got such a tight emergency planning process, and we practice it year round so that mm. we have good answers for meeting planners when they say, "Okay, we're thinking about." Uh, conference during hurricane season in New Orleans, tell me why I shouldn't be afraid. We've got a good answer for that. What is the answer? Well, it's a long answer, but it... You know. <laughs> give me the short version. Give we, me the, the sound bite. We practice year-round uh, with Homeland Security and a larger group um, working tabletop scenarios. Like, what do you do? we got a Category 3. Now there's a, a countdown, basically. Once, once a Category 3 or 4 gets a certain distance from our shores... Different things or different planning um, executions are triggered, right? So all the way up to contraflow. So things like water is assembled for quick deployment. Um, you know, evacuation routes are cleared and things like that. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes things mm-hmm. that happens that mm-hmm. city planners are working on mm-hmm. that you would never see. But yeah. but they're throughout the course of the year, there are tabletop exercises where. People keep those muscles mm. in shape so that we're not caught flat-footed the next time something like that happens. And uh, not to mention we've had a few real experiences. Exactly. So we have a clue um, how things work out and what we're going to have to do. Um, so I, I've got one more thing I just want to touch on before I let you go. And then maybe I, if I haven't touched on some points you want to make, please, you know, chime in here. This is your chance. But um, So I think a lot of people uh, who are out in the community who um, – produce things that they think one way or another have value for visitors. So in other words, they want to understand better how to work with the tourism industry in interfacing with the customers mm-hmm. that are coming in. So, um, you know, I talked to you about the tours, the cultural tours that my nonprofit organization does. Other people may have um, literally um, uh, goods that they're interested in selling to uh, consumers and um, other people have venues that they want to promote and bring them in. So what's your best advice to people who want to work with the CVB in trying to bring whatever they're doing before the visitors? There are a couple of things you can do. First, you can reach out to me. Um, I'll give you my contact info. It's it's K Sonier, S-O-N-N-I-E-R, at NewOrleansCVB.com. Um, and then there's convention services. Convention services keeps 
a good list of all the events and services that are in our stable because we have convention planners that sometimes want to do kind of off the beaten track type things. So Rachel Avery in convention services is a good resource for um, for events. Uh, good, you talked about goods. Um, we Rachel and convention services also talks to people who have goods because we we do offer some New Orleans items to VIPs and we're always giving people tips on where to shop. My the team swag bags, yeah, mm-hmm. and my team works mainly with journalists. So we touch about 170 journalists a month. Wow. That's our goal. And out of that, we want to place. And now you're talking about uh, that you speak with, that you write to, or that actually come to the city? That we speak to. Mm-hmm. One so, way or another. Yeah. Um, some people want to come. Oh, we host so far this month. We've fam hosted. Tours. Yeah. We've, we're kind of getting away from the group fam tour and doing more customized individual fam really? tours. Mm-hmm. So we've done 13 of those. Mm-hmm. For 13 people, we've done one group tour, a uh, group of four. Mm-hmm. But our goal is every month to touch and influence 170 journalists. And out of that, our goal is to place 83 stories, positive stories on New Orleans. And that's the drum, the steady drumbeat that we intend to keep up. And, and where can, uh, presumably on your website someplace, uh, people can go in and, and see all these stories? Or, I mean, do you, do you make... We don't we don't corral them all up. We we do run reports, but mm-hmm. we don't post them all. That that would be mm-hmm. a whole other job that we would do. Yeah, that would be like but a separate. You know. I can give you a report of them. I mean, they really do happen. We're audited every month, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. there's a ton of positive media exposure being pushed out on New Orleans by us. That's mm-hmm. no accident. There's no other arm in the city that's doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any other city that does this. When 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 the rep- when these journalists who co- who these travel journalists um, tell you what how they view their experience that they have had in the city or what they know about the city, what they hear about the city and compare it to others. What do they say that stands out about us in comparison to other places that, that they focus on, that they talk about a lot? So many things, but I think the one that rises to the top is our authenticity and the people. The people. The friendliness, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The people really do want to know how you're doing when you say, when, when they hear someone say, hey, how you doing? They're not used to people making time to have personal interactions with them. Making eye contact. Yeah. You know, I'm a former New Yorker, and you just don't make eye contact because there's too many people on the street. But yeah. But here people, you see you on the street, and they're going to say hello. Yeah. It's shocking to them, and we take it for granted sometimes. I don't because I hear it from them all the time, but they love the way that people in New Orleans want to share about what they love to do, their favorite restaurant, their favorite park, their favorite bike path or whatever. They, hey, Christian, they what's your favorite, what's your favorite um, bike path and what's your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite? Oh, just, God. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but <laughs> nobody in the tourism industry is listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's so hard. I love the Lafitte Greenway. I'm yeah, lo- do you actually bike it? I do, uh-huh. yeah, cool. on both ends, and I hope it extends beyond where it stops right now at the Brickyard, and yeah. I know that's in the plans. On restaurants, God, that that's just tough. Just name a few. I love Thousand Figs. You do? I'm thinking that, of the places I've recently you been to. walk there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's easy. I'm thinking yeah. of the places I've just recently been to. C- um, Central City Barbecue I went to today. I Incredible. haven't been to Central City Barbecue yet. It's on Clio um, and Rampart. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Um, 
I'm thinking of places that I've just recently been to. Cafe de Ga. I'm, you can see where this is going. I'm going to all the places that are near my house. You're in the sixth ward, baby. Um, And I just went to a new little place called The Station, a little coffee shop in Mid-City. heard about that. I haven't been there yet. It's really good. Good kolaches and meat pies. You go to Pagoda, too, don't you? I love Pagoda. But there's always a line at Pagoda. The secret's out about Pagoda. Well... You go on the off time, you know, you just sort of... Yeah, you're right across that. the street. That's easy for you. I know, and I walk <laughs> my dogs there, and I don't, you know, one of us will find a seat while the other one gets on the line. That's, yeah. that's how we play that game. Anything else coming up that we should know about that uh, we want to share with our folks? And um, Grayson, I haven't had, had, uh, had much from you just up until now, so uh, any closing thoughts about... The coming basketball season. <laughs> yeah, I mean the second half's gonna be gonna be pretty crazy. The trade deadline's not over either. Can't forget that. It's uh it's over tomorrow. So uh, you never know what moves are gonna get made tonight. I'm personally a Knicks fan, so I can say this on air. Carmelo Anthony goes. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Christian. I left out one place that I just recently went to. Okay. I was reminded how good it is. Katie's. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's an old standard, though. Yeah, that's, that's not a good new one. exactly, but that's a cool place. Cochon Delay Pizza. Cochon uh, mm. Delay uh, Pizza? i got to try that. Oh. oh, I had no idea that they had pizza. Guys, thank you very much for coming in. I know it's the end of the work day, so, or the school day, <laughs> but um, I appreciate you coming by. Keep me informed, especially um, let me know about those training sessions because, um, I mean, the job fairs. Okay. Uh, put me on the mailing list for the job fairs because I'd like to share that with the audience and make sure that folks that are listening to it get to know it. Okay. So, Christian Sonnier from the Convention and Visitors Bureau, so kind to give out your um, email. You want to do it one more time before you leave? K. Sonnier, that's spelled S O N N I E R, at New Orleans CVB. Dot com. That's Charlie Victor Bravo.com. Convention and Visitors Bureau. And Grayson? Thank you very much. Thank you. For coming in. Go Pels. You know, I love your little story about uh, what it was like to be there. And uh, next time you'll get me a ticket, right? It was a fantastic weekend, and you are coming with me. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Gene. So we had um, 100 celebrities in town for this event, 100 major players. Um, But we have another 100 that we're dealing with, and that was the fact that we actually got a commitment from a combination of the New Orleans um, Redevelopment Authority and the New Orleans Habitat for Humanity that brought us 100 new homes that are going to be built in the Lower Ninth Ward. And darn, it is about time. Because I think a lot of us have been watching those empty lots and watching the weeds go higher and higher and and wondering, is it ever going to come back? And, you know, there was so much scuttlebutt after the storm about who was coming back, who could come back, who can't come back, and, um, you know, whether there was actually going to be any kind of an opportunity for folks who were in some of the lower areas to come back. So I'm fascinated about this, and, and yet at the same time, there are those who don't feel we should come back to lower uh, areas. So I'm, I'm real curious to hear about the decision of, of um, uh, New Orleans Habitat for Humanity to go back into that area. Well, the first thing I'd say is that um, I think, as all of us know, New Orleans will not be completely rebuilt until the Lower Ninth Ward is rebuilt. Um, 
New Orleans is a city of neighborhoods. I didn't introduce you. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. Put your name out there. I'm Jim Pate. I'm the executive director of New Orleans Area Habitat for Humanity. And going back to what I was saying, uh, New Orleans is a city of neighborhoods, and there are fierce loyalties to neighborhoods and communities. And I think uh, when somebody from out of town, some urban planner, goes and sticks a green dot in a neighborhood, um, that's, that is both insulting to the people who live there and grew up there, uh, and it's frightening to them. Um, when we, after the failure of the levees and flood walls, we actually pulled the first new house construction permit in the uh, city of New Orleans, and that was in late October of 2006. And then shortly thereafter, May, I'm sorry, late October 2005, only two months after the failure of the levees. Uh, then we started working on the Musician's Village in uh, the spring and March of 2006. So we were intimately involved in the uh, recovery of the Upper Ninth Ward. And we actually took a look at the Lower Nine. It was the last one to get services, last one to get power in, last one to get potable water. Uh, Brad Pitt went in with his Make It Right project down there. Uh, after he was introduced to the area by Global Green, I'm very aware of how that all works since I that's, worked with Global Green. And they're still active down there in the community. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but anyway, we uh, we made a decision at that point that we had the Upper Ninth Ward we were building in, and we've expanded over the years into a number of other neighborhoods, Seventh Ward, Holly Grove area, East New Orleans. But in the back of our mind, we were always thinking that the Lower Nine's got to come back. And uh, the city put a lot of resources in, uh, built a couple of schools, uh, did the beautiful, beautiful community center. Uh, a new CVS pharmacy came in. Just so mm -hmm. it's at that edge where uh, if there are enough people living there, that provides economic incentive for businesses to come in, that strengthens the schools. You don't want kids walking five blocks past empty lots to get home, that type of thing. And we so NORA, the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority, did a major, major study of the housing needs in the Lower Ninth Ward, and this was a couple of years ago. Uh, the results were that the neighborhood at that point in time could absorb up to 300 housing units in a mix of home ownership and rental. And that, you know, they did an extensive major study of the whole area. So that was kind of a starting point for the city of New Orleans and Nora. And we, uh, we got involved very early on in talking with them after that study about what we could contribute in the area. And uh, then it went on and ultimately went to an RFP. So I want to go back for a second to your point about the green dots because I kind of um, know a little bit about the green dots having worked with um, a lot of the planning phases. And um, the green dots were kind of misunderstood because really mm -hmm. what, what they were all about was providing for green development in the in a sense that you create things like the swales and and canals and uh, low points and green space to absorb water mm -hmm. as a way of protecting homes. So it never was meant to mean, oh, we're just not going to redevelop this area, right? 
Yeah, it's, that, right? it's, it was all of a master water management plan, and of course we've now uh, put that in the city uh, building codes. So there's a lot of water management that is now required so whenever that, you're doing commercial. And that, I think that's it's what I was going to ask you in terms mm-hmm. of how you're re- doing your project in the mm-hmm. ninth ward. Is that worked into it? Um, it's worked to it in the sense that our houses are all single family, and they have front yards, backyards, very large backyards. Um, we are exploring. We used to do what's called a band driveway. It's two strips of concrete with uh, either dirt or gravel or something in between them. They were uh, basically not allowed as driveway for residential in a lot of neighborhoods, and there is talk now about the possibility of bringing them back. We haven't gone as far as permeable concrete but we are, as a matter of fact, taking a look at it for another major project we're doing that I hope we can touch on later. Um, but it's a, it's now built into the building code. Now, we always have felt like we built uh, fairly green houses. They're high energy efficiency. They're very solid. Um, we actually did a pallet project, project with Greenpeace uh, back before. What do you mean a pallet project? What does that mean? Pallet. Pilot, pilot project, okay. yes, sorry. I thought you said pallet. Yeah. Uh, we did a project with Greenpeace that we were trying to make a plastic-free uh, house, and interestingly, we were able to do this. That was our first hardy board house, which is a, a fibro-cement product. It happens to be masonry-rated. You can't set it on fire. But we did a house there with uh, all of the flooring, countertop, everything else were all green products. Uh, but interestingly, the thing we could not afford to work into the house was the basic electrical wiring because basically all domestic electrical wiring has the PVC, the white or the black or the red, on the actual copper wires. And the cost of of electrical wiring that didn't have PVC coats was astronomical, and we were bemused by that because... The only people the industry makes that type of wiring for is for the U.S. Defense Department. It has to go into military aircraft and certain other, like submarines and all, because the problem is is if there's a fire and there's a lot of electrical wiring, you can get fumes. Yeah, yeah. So how how is it going? How is it going to be? um, How how what's the layout? Of the houses and and, and how will <clears throat> people um, relate to each other? I mean, are, are your units all going to be right right next to each other? What's the mm-hmm. land plan, land use plan? <clears throat> well, the first thing to note is that the lots that were put out in the RFP for people to apply for uh, are all uh, road home lots where people sold the lot first to. Oh, uh, okay. So it's not all one. No, block. and so some people came back and rebuilt. Some people are still sitting on their lots and maybe hoping someday they will be able to come back. And a lot of people just said, I'm not, you know, not going to come back to New Orleans. So they sold their land. So this is not, these lots that we're dealing with is not where we're keeping somebody from coming back. They've already made the decision not to come back and they've sold the lots. They initially to the road home uh, program, which in turn turned them over to City of New Orleans and New Orleans Redevelopment Authority. Uh, Nora has about 500 or so lots in the Lower Ninth 
ward, but they're scattered. They're what's called scattered sites. That does not mean that there may not be two or three together, but basically there's not like here's a square block that's all of ours that we can sell a developer. Uh, so they put it on an RFP, a request for proposals, uh, roughly five nonprofits and one hybrid, and meaning a for-profit partnered with a nonprofit, and one for-profit builder all applied. They made awards to uh, four nonprofits, one of whom later dropped out, and to the hybrid nonprofit and the for-profit developer. Um, I'm proud to say that the New Orleans Habitat uh, response to the request for proposals was the highest rated one. The advantage of that meant that we uh, we got first choice of lots. So in our case, they tend to be clustered uh, over about a 10-square block area. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other nonprofits did similar type of clustering in other areas. Um, some of the, for-profit, the for-profit folk kind of scattered through the neighborhood. And then there was a little bit of horse trading, you know, like – uh, one nonprofit would say, gee, I'd really like to have those two lots, mm-hmm. and I'll give you those two lots, and mm-hmm. we'd swap. Uh, but ours are all basically concentrated, and I want to emphasize that um, New Orleans Habitat is striking out in a new direction, in part in response. You were talking with Christian about the cost of, of uh, or the wages of service industry yeah. folks yeah. and the increases in rent post-Katrina have been devastating to so many people. There's a concept in affordable housing called housing challenged, and that basically means that you're paying over 30% of your monthly income in direct housing expenses, be it rent, be it mortgage, whatever. Uh, In New Orleans, we have basically, to to total amazement, over 50% of our renters are in that category, they pay over 30% of their income in their rent and related expenses. Of that 50%, almost 30% are paying over 50% of their income. Wow. So when you're looking at someone that is at a low-wage position and they're paying over 50% of that, and particularly when they're on an hourly pay so they can get sent home early or whatever like that, it's extremely difficult to plan, uh, to pay your rent and do all the other things you need. They are literally one step away from uh, being homeless if they have a car problem or something and can't get to work. And the other dynamic we're seeing are a tremendous number of service workers are moving to the West Bank or Slidell or out the other side of or into Jeff Paris somewhere. Just where they to get can, lower prices. Right, mm-hmm. right. They have larger uh, low-priced apartments. So that's uh, for all of those reasons, plus some innovative programs that we've initiated with some other nonprofits, such as Covenant House, where we're doing a very, very exciting transitional housing program for some of their clients who have completed their rites of passage um, program. They've gotten a job, they've gotten their counseling, they've got education. Um, Covenant House will continue to provide services, but they're ready to to transition back into the community. So we are actually reserving some of our duplex rentals, and all our rentals are duplexes. They fit in the neighborhood. Uh, Literally, you can't tell, generally speaking, you can't tell a duplex from a house if you're driving by. 
So by a duplex, really, in New Orleans terms, that sounds like a double. Yep, it's a double. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a double and uh, obviously looks just like a Habitat house, except mm-hmm. it's got two doors. It's a little mm-hmm. bit larger. Our, we have over 15 house plans, including a couple of camelbacks and stuff like that. But in broad terms, our Habitat houses, on average, are between 11 and 1,200 square feet, three-bedroom, single-family detached homes. Our duplexes are coming in uh, with each side uh, is a two-bedroom duplex, and each side is coming in at about 700 to 800 square feet. So these are nice units. They're brand new. We're very proud of the structural integrity of our work. Uh, People occasionally say, well, don't you have problems building with volunteers? And, you know, Gene, it's actually the opposite because the professional guy will come bouncing along with his nail gun and do it as fast as he can to get the job done. You tell a a volunteer that they need to put two nails directly above each other in a stud, and the next thing you know, they'll think one of them's a little out of line, so they'll add a third one. Or you tell them you're supposed to put three nails on a roofing, three-tab roofing shingle or four nails, and the next thing you know, they put six so our houses, we call it love in the mortar joints. Our volunteers build very strong, very solid houses. We had, as a matter of fact, we had over 100 houses prior to the failure of the levees. And while some took flooding, um, none of them had any structural damage whatsoever. Wow. And virtually no loss of roofing material. We had one in Little Woods that lost a single three-tab shingle. Uh, so they are they are well built houses. That's, and, uh, that's very interesting. I, I I didn't realize they were that well built. Um, so um, l- let me let me have a picture. Let me have your vision for um, what the lower ninth board is going to look like, and by when. So give me some sense of. <clears throat> well, a couple of things. Back around the tenth anniversary, we had some discussions with the city and with Nora about the Lower Ninth in particular, um, and their study. And that also was playing off of their new study, those those conversations. And that called for, as I said, a mix of 300 houses in rental units, roughly half and half. Um, in our discussions with the city and the Nor- and NOR, we made a commitment to provide 100 of those 300 housing units over the next three to five years. Now, the NORA... Uh, Lower Ninth Ward Initiative, which is a very, very exciting consortium of our sister nonprofits and, and at least one for-profit builder, uh, have together committed to build just on this round alone. I, think, I believe the total is 296 units in the next three to five years. That's pretty quick. That yeah. is, well, not only is it pretty quick, but that's a tremendous impact and what we think is going to happen is It'll as spur we're, other development right. around it. Because uh, so far, I mean, that was the, the whole idea behind um, Brad Pitt's housing. And I think there are, I know there were about 100 maybe six months ago, so I don't know many. It's how 104. It's 104. So, you know, I think the expectation was that was going to spur development uh, mm-hmm. throughout the whole area, and it didn't happen. No, and part of it, I think, is that Brad was really focused on green construction, state-of-the-art design, uh, all of those things, while being sensitive, of course, to the floods because he built the original mm-hmm. original tranche of houses very high, high off the ground. Yeah. Um, but people, 
I don't think followed him so much. So you really haven't had uh, a lot of residential construction. There are a few. We've actually built uh, five or six houses in there uh, prior the, to this the, initiative. And the Build Now people have been in there. Yes, Build Now has done some. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, But it hasn't really had that uh, momentum. I was just going to say the needed. momentum wasn't there. Yeah. No, but this this consortium that's going in together, and we're talking some of the, the best affordable housing nonprofits in the city that are all teaming together, uh, we're going to get that done. And as we get it done, I might add, by the way, that the city in their latest uh, community development block grant, CDBG program, has made a commitment to affordable housing all over the city, but particularly they've carved out a piece for the Lower Ninth Ward. Now, Habitat normally does not use any or much government funding. We are accepting some for the rental doubles, but that's also going to help provide the fuel for that momentum as well. So it's going to be an exciting time down there. I think in uh, probably in two or three years you're going to start seeing um, other initiatives taking place. The ancillary developments, yep. the, the the shopping alternatives, right. the medical facilities, the and surely you know the entertainment that we all oh, yeah. thrive on oh, yeah. in this part of town. Um, so. What about what about the threat of flood and, and, and high water again? I mean, we know that, you know, with the combination of coastal land loss and um, rising oceans and, mm-hmm. and just all the disturbing weather patterns that are happening as a result of global warming, uh, these these were not – this is no – these are no longer 100-year storms or, or even 30 mm-hmm. years. We tend mm-hmm. to think in 30-year uh, bundles around here. But um, – the houses that you're building there, you're you're in low. You're it's what's the sea level in that area? It's fairly um, low in many well, places. Well, it's, it's it? much lower out, oh, back by Florida Avenue and the the levee back there. Uh-huh. Uh, as you get towards Holy Cross, which essentially did well, not have when much. you get close to the river, of course, right. this is living and by the river. But you're you're mainly building, aren't you, on the other side of uh, Saint Claude? We're building between Saint Claude, Claude, and Claiborne for the large part. Right now. Oh, what? so closer to St. Claude. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what you have to do when you look at that is, yes, if you had a total catastrophic failure of levees and flood walls, um, you would have the kind of flooding we had this time, and in a few years, for the factors you mentioned, it could be more. And that is true of coastal cities all over the world. They're uh-huh. all trying to deal with this. Right. The Corps of Engineers does a measurement called the base flood elevation. And in simple terms, that's how high their models predict the water will get if the levee doesn't break. If you if you have catastrophic flooding, so forth, it's everything except a total breach of the levees. And it takes them months and years to uh, come up with the base flood elevation um, when you've had something like this plus all the new levee construction. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when we were doing the Musicians' Village in the Upper Ninth Ward, uh, we were ready to start in March, and nobody knew what the base, what, flood. What the base flood elevation was going to be. That, yeah. So, unlike the federal government doing all these studies and everything, we used a different technique. Uh, we call it common sense. <laughs> and we said it isn't going to flood any worse than it has in the in the Upper Ninth Ward. So, we'll just... Find out how high, look in the fences and the houses, see how high the water got, got and build, build up one that. to one and a half feet above that, which is what we did. 
interestingly, all of our musicians' village houses are basically at about five to five and a half feet uh, before above the the ground, and the base flood elevation when core finally developed it is three and a half feet. Right. So we always there build. There are some people who question that three and a half feet. Of well, yeah, and obviously, and uh, uh, again, that's all. Uh, Assuming that your levees and flood walls are going to be intact, and that things like the the offshore type of stuff, the uh, giant locks and all, will stop. I personally think some people disagree with this, but I personally think closing the Mister Go will help a lot. Oh, without a doubt, and I don't think there's anybody who questions yeah, that really anymore. Yeah. And there's absolutely no question that coastal land restoration is is a critical need. Yeah, that's uh, that's another story. That's yep. going to take a while too. But so, um, all right. So back to so you're building the houses now that you're going to be building in the lower nine. Mm-hmm. How high off the ground are they going to be? They're they're going to be right now. They're at about they're at about four four and a half to five feet in the lower ninth ward. Mm-hmm. We're not going up any higher because again. Base flood elevation is between three and five, roughly, in there. Again, depending on how close you are to the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not building anything over in the uh, Florida Avenue section, so we really haven't looked mm-hmm. too much into their their base flood elevation. Uh, but I, w- I want to add that that uh, we're looking at an area with extremely strong community. At one point, the lower nine had the highest home ownership of any ward in the city. And another interesting thing about the pattern there is that you had families. Yes. That well, one family might have <laughs> 20 homes. That's correct. Between cousins and aunts and, you know, uh, extended family relationships. So do you see that coming back? That's what we're going to put every effort into doing. We have a uh, uh, person in the neighborhood we have the greatest, utmost respect for, um, who is part of one of those groups. He's the patriarch of a large family that all evacuated. They have been struggling to get back. This is Mr. Ronald Lewis. And he had a grandniece who's been living in the Upper Ninth Ward. And I'm proud to tell you that she is the first tenant in a rental unit that we built in the Lower Ninth because the whole family wanted her back. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're reaching out in, at the community level, at community meetings, at faith communities, uh, from individuals. We're trying to reach out and have them reach to their family members who want to come back. I, I was going to ask you, how are you finding them? Because yeah. that's always a big issue is how do you find the people who are going? Well, of course, that's what Habitat for Humanity has been doing for almost 35 years here. So we're pretty good at getting out in the community. We have a lot of outreach efforts. Uh, but I can tell you this, the number one uh, way that we get our homeowners is word of mouth. With all the fancy techniques, that's the yep. key thing. Interesting. So um, your houses will be finished again within what period of time? Three, Three to, to five, five years. years. Three to five and, years. And uh, the other developers coming? I think they'll be in roughly the same time. So you right? think they'll be, you're saying, um Three Almost 300 house or 300. housing units. and uh, so, so, your, so your message is the Lower Ninth Ward is going to come back. Absolutely. And I think when you look at, for example, I live in Bywater. Uh, when I moved there over 10 years ago, we had lots of service people who lived in Bywater and biked over to the quarter to work. 
Um, we had a lot of people in other industries that lived in there. And bit by bit, the rentals have gone up. I saw a two-bedroom house, one bath, 1500 bucks, And that that's just it's unaffordable. Gentrification. And it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. And, you know, as an arts-oriented person who loves to see arts people come into a neighborhood and make things happen, I hate to see that other end of it where it, it, it goes so well that it causes gentrification. Well, it's happening. Yeah. They're going to go to places like the Lower Ninth Ward where they can afford it if we build affordable housing for them. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope that you're right about all this. Now, uh, how can somebody who is interested, who's listening to the show right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, find out about uh, what's available and how to get in on get in on the new the new lower ninth ward? Well, our, the best way to do it is to get on our website, which is habitat-nola.org. O-R-G. That's the uh, habitat-nola.org. Our office number is five zero four eight six one. Two zero seven seven. We did a wall raising with New Orleans Redevelopment Authority on the first one of those we did just a few days ago. We were ecstatic at the number of phone calls and hits on our website we got due to the media coverage of that event. So one of our concerns, as you mentioned earlier, are people really going to come back? You know, it's, it's in the back of your mind when you're committing to build 100 homes and rental units. I'm not worried about that anymore. The, the demand is out there. People are urgently wanting to get back to the Lower Ninth Ward or to move there where they can get affordable workplace housing. And we're we're just honored to be part of the group that's making that happen and, and working with Nora to make it happen. And, Jim, I have to say thank you to um, New Orleans Habitat for Humanity. It's, it's It really is an important um, citizen group of people who have uh, been making things happen here in New Orleans and, and of course, many other parts of the country. And and thanks way back to President Jimmy Carter who got it all started. Yep. Um, All right. So that's Habitat hyphen, no, not underscore hyphen, right? Hyphen. Habitat hyphen NOLA dot org, y'all. 504-861-2077. 504-861-2077. Check it out. Jim Pate, Executive Director of the New Orleans Area Habitat for Humanity. Thank you very much for what you're doing. Thank you for coming this evening. Thank you, Gene, and, um, and thank you for helping us spread our message. Absolutely. All right, guys. Next week, you know, Ash Wednesday, but I'll be here. Will you be here, Jazz? Jazz will be here, too. All right. We look forward to seeing you all next week. Talking to you on the phone, on the radio. Gene Nathan, Quest on Conversations, WBOK, signing out.